How's it going, comrades? You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. My name is JD, and this is my co-host, Esha. Hello! Today we are speaking with Colleen Rowley, who was a former FBI agent and whistleblower who exposed post-9-11 constitutional violations by the FBI. She also gave a very prophetic warning about the militarization of police. Before we bring on Colleen, I just want to give you guys a quick background on 9-11. Host Esha. Hello! Today we are speaking with Colleen Rowley, who was a former FBI agent and whistleblower who exposed post-9-11 constitutional violations by the FBI. She also gave a very prophetic warning about the militarization of police. Before we bring on Colleen, I just want to give you guys a quick background on 9-11. Everyone sees it as a pre-9-11 era and a post-9-11 era because many things changed. On September 11th, two planes came crashing down on the World Trade Center. The same day, our freedoms came crashing down. Because immediately afterwards, the Bush administration used 9-11 as an excuse to authorize an endless war against an invisible enemy. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Americans have known wars, but for the past 136 years, they have been wars on foreign soil, except for one Sunday in 1941. Americans have known the casualties of war, but not at the center of a great city on a peaceful morning. Americans have known surprise attacks, but never before on thousands of civilians. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. Americans have many questions tonight. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organizations known as Al-Qaeda. They are some of the murderers indicted for bombing American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya and responsible for bombing the USS Cole. Al-Qaeda is to terror what the mafia is to crime. But its goal is not making money. Its goal is remaking the world and imposing its radical beliefs on people everywhere. They are sent back to their homes or sent to hide in countries around the world to plot evil and destruction. The leadership of Al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. In Afghanistan, we see Al-Qaeda's vision for the world. Afghanistan's people have been brutalized. Many are starving, and many have fled. Women are not allowed to attend school. You can be jailed for owning a television. Religion can be practiced only as their leaders dictate. A man can be jailed in Afghanistan if his beard is not long enough. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan. After all, we are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid, but we condemn the Taliban regime. It is not only repressing its own people, it is threatening people everywhere. 
by sponsoring and sheltering and supplying terrorists, by aiding and abetting murder, the Taliban regime is committing murder. And tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. Release all foreign nationals, including American citizens you have unjustly imprisoned. Protect foreign journalists, diplomats, and aid workers in your country. Close immediately and permanently every terrorist training camp in Afghanistan and hand over every terrorist and every person in their support structure to appropriate authorities. Give the United States full access to terrorist training camps so we can make sure they are no longer operating. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. A month and a half after 9-11, under the guise of national security, the Patriot Act was the first of many changes to surveillance laws. Now the government monitors everyone's phone calls and emails, bank information, and everything searched on the internet. While most Americans thought it was created to catch terrorists, the Patriot Act actually turns regular citizens into suspects. Last month, House leaders declared that they needed 21 additional days to pass legislation giving our intelligence professionals the tools they need to protect America. That deadline passed last Saturday without any action from the House. This week, House leaders are finally bringing legislation to the floor. Unfortunately, instead of holding a vote on the good bipartisan bill that passed the United States Senate, they introduced a partisan bill that would undermine America's security. This bill is unwise. The House leaders know that the Senate will not pass it. And even if the Senate did pass it, they know I will veto it. Their partisan legislation would extend protections we enjoy as Americans to foreign terrorists overseas. It would cause us to lose vital intelligence on terrorist threats and that there's a risk that our country cannot afford to take. The American people understand the stakes in this struggle. They want their children to be safe from terror. Congress has done little in the three weeks since the last recess, and they should not leave for their Easter recess without getting the Senate bill to my desk. Thank you. Colleen Raleigh now joins us to tell us what happened behind the scenes. Immediately after 9-11, what was the first major change you saw in the FBI? Up until that point, there had been what they call the wall, the wall separating intelligence from criminal. And the reason that there has to be a wall is that you can use national security as a pretext to undermine the constitutional rights against search and, uh, search and seizure and interrogation, uh, right against self-incrimination, right to attorney. So if you start to say that we are in a war and national security is matters more than the law itself, um, because the law only applies in a court, in a criminal case. And so this wall had existed whereby you couldn't go around the Fourth Amendment. For instance, you need a warrant normally to listen in on, on somebody for a criminal purpose. I, I, I um, worked in, on mafia cases in New York City in the 1980s, and all of our monitoring of mafia 
uh, criminals was done legally because we got a criminal warrant and a district judge signed off that we had probable cause. Well, that's not how it works in the intelligence area. Uh, we, we monitor even Angela Merkel, <laughs> we monitor all kinds of foreign people, but then they started after 9-11 monitoring Americans too. And so one of the first legal things that happened, and it happened in, in a variety of ways, uh, it happened for starters because the court itself, the FISA Court of Appeal, determined that the, that the FBI did not need to prove that they were engaged in a, um, excuse me, it's called a, uh, a foreign intelligence purpose. So they, they didn't have to show that they were working only for foreign intelligence. They could say, you know, this is for criminal purposes as well. And that brought the wall down. Who would provide any legal excuse for any action the Bush administration wanted to carry out. Normally, a terrorist incident would have been handled exclusively by the FBI and tried in the civilian court. But President Bush authorized a war against an invisible enemy. And then later during this, during this war, when President Bush didn't want to treat people that were captured as prisoners of war, John Yu came up with a new concept that wasn't in the Geneva Conventions about how certain provisions don't apply because they were unlawful enemy combatants and thereby they could be shipped to Guantanamo and tortured. And speaking of torture, why don't we listen to what John Yu's beliefs are about torturing children? If the president deems that he's got to torture somebody, including by crushing the testicles of the person's child, there is no law that can stop that. No treaty. No, and then also no law by Congress. That's what you wrote in the August 2002 memo. I think it depends on why the president thinks he needs to do that. John Yu, uh, was the main, and he had he had another co-writers with him, but the main co-writer was a is now a law professor. So is John Yu. They were working for over a year in churning out memos for the Office of Legal Counsel. They they churned out dozens of these memos. Some, I would say, probably most of them have been made public by now, but not all of them. And basically, all of these memos legalized illegal things. So for instance, in torture, the first memo that they decided to, well, the, I guess the very first memo was written uh, about five or six months after 9-11. They said the Geneva Conventions no longer apply. Now that's, you can't do that. Uh, a treaty that's been signed is, is the land, the supreme land, uh, law of the land. And so John Yu sitting in a little cubicle can't write up a memo saying that the United States no longer follows the Geneva Conventions. But in fact, that's what he did in January of 2002. Before that, they started to write, well, we're gonna have to torture, et cetera, et cetera. After 9-11 too, there's, there's one memo that's about three, four weeks written after 9-11, and it says that freedom of the press no longer is, is going to matter. Um, now that we're in a war, uh, freedom of press really won't matter anymore. That's also written by John they write up a memo saying that we're going to violate, we're going to end the anti-ballistic missile with Russia. Again, there are dozens of these memos, and all they they essentially do is say that something that was highly illegal is going to be legal from now on because we're in a war, and you know our national security takes precedence over all the lo the prior law. 
After 9-11, the Bush administration rushed to pass many hasty reactionary laws like the Patriot Act and warrantless wiretapping. How did the internal operations of the FBI change in response? Um, I have two questions now. After 9-11, I do remember the FBI just like went to like random mostly Muslim Americans' houses and just like dragged their parents away or whatever. What was the reasoning behind it? And was Mueller the FBI agent at that? Like, what did he do for that? Yeah, Mueller, I, this is, I, when I wrote a Huffington Post about Mueller and Comey not being uh, the heroes that they've been made out to be, and why can't anyone remember this history and these track records? That was one of the things I pointed to. It was also one of the things I pointed to in the letter I wrote in, uh, in February to Mueller, uh, telling, basically warning him about Iraq, and I really picked all of these, uh, as many as many items as I could, one of which was that the post, what they called the post 9-11 roundup, and so in New York City especially, but even in some other places, there was enormous pressure, Mueller was the FBI director, he was allowing this to happen, and Ashcroft, and they were just going along, and telling the American public, that they were handling the crisis by increasing numbers of arrests and detentions. And so we were, we were putting out press releases on a daily basis telling the American public how many people had been arrested and implied that they were arrested as terrorists. Okay. And, and so this went on every single day. Um, our office had to send in a report every day saying how many people. And in fact, we had, you know, our office had detained uh, visa for elapsed visa, Musawi, who was the who was the only he was the only terrorist connected to the to the hijackers. So we just kept sending in a report that said one, 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 one every day. But every other office was trying to, to stop people, and mostly they ended up with several hundred, almost a thousand people detained in New York City, and wow. the jailers in most cases were led to believe that they were terrorists. Oh God! They were actually beat up. Some of them were beat up uh, because the jailers thought they were terrorists. And so, <clears throat> uh, after the the um, the nine eleven commission, let's see. I'm trying to remember who found this out. Actually, no, go back. It was the inspector general. Finally, like three years later, in the uh, the summer of two thousand three, I believe. So it would have been two years later. It was the summer of two thousand three. Finally the Inspector General for the Department of Justice found out, investigated this whole post 9-11 roundup and found none, none, zero of those people that the FBI detained, and like I said, in some cases they were beat up and brutalized, um, were terrorists. And so, you know, again, now all of this is water under the bridge. You know, if you think about how horrible it is, for your FBI to be running out and just detaining people wantonly. And you know, that part of it is they didn't check out things, they just took them into custody. In some cases, like the FBI agent would actually try to check it out afterwards. Uh, there was a case of like a Pakistani dishwasher who was working in New York City. Um, and yes, when they, when they stopped him, he had a lot, a lot of cash on him. So it was so suspicious, here he was, you know, a Pakistani, and he, he was only a dishwasher, and whatever, and here he had all this cash on him, so of course they threw him in jail, 
And the agent found out, he, he investigated afterwards, and he found out there was a good reason for the cash. He had just been paid his whole year's salary, <clears throat> and he was on his way. Oh, he was taking pictures as well. And he was taking some sightseeing pictures oh, the day before he was to go back home. And when the agent found out, they tried to get the guy released. And he was unable to get the guy released because Ashcroft, once they were all in custody, was now nervous about releasing any of them. And so they, they kept a lot of them for an entire year. And, you know, again, this was all wrong. You never heard any of the Mia No one admitted they were wrong afterwards. Ashcroft said, I will never admit I'm wrong because I was just trying to uh, help the American people, keep the American people safe. And Mueller said much the same. So this is the whole problem with these people that are so uh, proud and you know they're so uh, self-important is that they will never admit that they make errors. Uh, this is kind of the bad thing. Here he is, a special counsel, and everybody now is trusting him oh, as being on this pillar. And he just has repeated episodes of making terrible mistakes and then never even admitting he made a mistake. In fact, they go after the whistle. In fact, in many cases, they go after the whistleblowers who revealed the mistake. And my cover was that I'm a French and Syrian uh, individual who is seeking to embrace my Islamic roots. But in truth, Craig Monte says he was working as an undercover spy for the FBI. What they told me was that I would be trained as a Muslim to infiltrate mosques. He's an ex-convict who claims over the course of many months, he secretly recorded conversations with hundreds of Muslims, including in more than 10 different mosques in the Los Angeles area. And then he would all of a sudden jump into like, I can get us weapons to go do something in, in some building in LA or something like that. Curdy and others worked out at this Irvine, California gym where Monte admitted recording conversations with Muslims as they exercised. These Arab Americans say his actions while working for the FBI amounted to entrapment and violated their constitutional rights. He was telling people, it's like, I have a, a sheikh in Afghanistan that I know. I was hearing that, and I was hearing him saying stuff like, you know, I, I have access to different things. That, you know, I can help you out plan something. You need to plan something. Those were the types of things that I was hearing. Troubled by Monte's words, this man, Ahmadullah Niazi, reported him to the FBI. Soon after that, the FBI arrested Niazi for a charge that boiled down to lying on his U.S. passport application. So a lot of this occurred increasingly as the so-called global war on terror went on and on and on. It just got worse. All of these things, the entrapment cases, everything just seems to have gotten worse. But there was a Department of uh, Justice Inspector General report in about, I don't remember now, 2009 or something like that, 2010. There were many Inspector General reports criticizing Mueller's FBI. And one of them was specifically on this problem that you just mentioned, which is that the FBI. And by the way, it violates First Amendment, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of press, uh, freedom of association, freedom of association. So they sent people into a lot of different groups. And there was one group I remember in, uh, I want to say Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, uh, excuse me, Philadelphia, maybe Philadelphia, Catholic Peace Group, um, all, all of these groups. And, and they find out that it's not based on any 
real level of evidence. They don't have any, uh, what's the word? They don't have any reason for doing this. And, and right now they changed the uh, um, attorney general, the attorney general um, uh, guidelines that came about as a result of the church committee in the 1970s when J. Edgar Hoover was sending uh, agents to spy on everybody. That was the, what went on for Fort, under J. Edgar Hoover. He didn't have to follow laws and he was sending agents to spy on all kinds of things. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was considered Hoover's top enemy. So he was, he planted microphones, everything. So that resulted in the church committee in 1976 to 77, something like that. One of the big remedies was that they, they formed attorney general guidelines that prohibited the FBI from sending in uh, agents to infiltrate groups uh, or churches or mosques or whatever, unless they, um, unless they really had a higher level of evidence. Those guidelines got, over the years, first they got watered down, then they got watered down again, and then they just got tossed away. And now, essentially, they don't need any real level of evidence. But Mueller actually got criticized because he had sent agents into all kinds of groups and without any, you know, they were all, you know, some were environmental groups, anti-fracking was one of the things that was going on. And so, you know, they considered anybody who had an opinion, essentially, uh, could be dangerous. Oh, wow. Um, so, um... And that hasn't, I don't think that not any of this, you know, when I'm talking about Mueller, I don't think any of it really stopped under Comey. And I would expect that a lot of it hasn't stopped under Ray as well. Um, I think that as long as you can posit that there's this, you know, danger or enemy, uh, everyone's going to fall into that trap whereby the old standards that they used to adhere to, um, you argue that we can't, no, we can't, we can't uh, stick with those standards because they're too restrictive on us. We have to take the gloves off. So I think that that's probably still going on all of his appointees, uh, well, one of which is Mueller. Mueller, I think, um, has a way, he's, he's, a, he's got that square-jawed Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. G-man, and, and you see this now, especially with all of your Democrats believing that he's telling the truth. So he's, he's got this kind of dominating persona that somehow he's modeling integrity. Um, after he was appointed as the special counsel, I wrote an, an article called Mueller and Comey are not heroes. And I, I, I essentially started off by saying, I can't believe everyone has forgotten their history because Mueller, not only in 9-11 and his testimony in Iraq, but I mean, these guys got almost everything wrong. Sometimes just by pure incompetence, they got it wrong let alone the sycophancy to, to power. Mueller and Comey both fingered the wrong, the anthrax killer as being Stephen Hatfield. And this was a guy that the American government later had to pay $5 million to because he's totally innocent. Slow down. And then that was Mueller and Comey doing that. Can no, you we don't as to what the anthrax killer was and who he was, what, what the anthrax issue was? You know, the, the anthrax killer is another big piece of this because this guy, whoever he is, and I, maybe it's more than one, but uh, 
we know one thing for sure. He came out of Fort Detrick American Bioweapons Research. And so the, the United States has all these horrible germs, and including anthrax and, and other things that they do uh, experiments and research on. And, and no one, it's never really quite explained why they're doing this. Obviously, I think they're doing it for purposes of, of having the United States have its own weapons, you know, having its own bioweapons. But Fort Detrick was a location that did this research including with anthrax. And there is one thing that's pretty well confirmed is whoever that anthrax killer was who, who started sending anthrax-laden, uh, very, very powderized anthrax uh, to different places. And these letters got mixed up in the mail and they killed people. And I think how many people total? Uh, what, 10 people or something that they ended up killing? But they killed people all over and they were sent to senators' offices. They were also sent to, to media offices. And in fact, those anthrax letters had more of an impact in terrorizing the United States as a whole, or, or at least as much impact as 9-11 itself, because they were sent just, uh, uh, in fact, maybe two weeks. It was like less than, whoever it was recognized an opportunity. And they said, no, the United States just had a terrorist attack from Al-Qaeda. I'm going to impersonate and uh, being Al-Qaeda, and I'm going to add to the terror by sending anthrax letters throughout the mail. Um, so again, Mueller and Comey, they got this uh, notion that it was this innocent man, Stephen Hatfell, and they, were, they weren't able to identify who the, the real anthrax killer was. Eventually, years and years later, after paying off uh, Hatfell $5 million because he was innocent, um, they eventually claimed it was uh, a guy named Bruce Ivins who worked at Fort Detrick who committed suicide. And <clears throat> I don't know for sure. I, I just have an open mind, a skeptical, certain skepticism, but also uh, really don't know. It could have been Bruce Ivins for, for different reasons, but it also possibly could have been somebody else that they have yet to identify. And uh, because he committed suicide, so it really is one of these things that isn't quite known. But what we do know is it came that it, the anthrax, anthrax itself is pretty well confirmed that it came out of Fort Detrick. And uh, again, quick question What was Comey's role in 2003, and what was Miller's role in 2003? Well, Mueller was, of course, the FBI director, and he was the uh, second longest FBI director after J. Edgar Hoover because. So Obama kept him on for two more years. So he ended up being the FBI director from 2001 till what, 2013 or something like that, 14. Um, Comey was a Department of Justice official at the same time as Mueller was FBI director. And they had that famous moment, um, and this goes back to what I was telling you about the John Yoo memos. All of these illegal memos were being written up and they were based on uh, emergency powers. When we're in war, <clears throat> John Yu, his theory is of imperial presidency that the constitution says that if you're in a war, the president can basically have martial law powers. That's what a lot of the memos are based on. Wow. Now, the American people didn't know that Bush had declared martial law because it wasn't publicly declared. But the memos themselves were based on that theory that in a time of war, it's an emergency and the president doesn't have to follow 
Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, First Amendment, none of those things matter anymore. And so when there was a, when John Yu left the Office of Legal Counsel and his replacements came in, they started looking at those memos. One of those people that looked at them was Comey. Comey was a, was a um, assistant attorney general. And in fact, he became, uh, he became the acting attorney general for a short time when Ashcroft had a pancreatic attack and went to the hospital. And uh, Comey refused to sign off on these regular periodic emergency orders. Every 90 days, Ashcroft was signing something saying, it's an emergency, therefore we don't have to follow the law. It's an emergency. That went on for you know two, three years. And, and Comey had banded together with the new, some of the new people in Office of Legal Counsel and Mueller. Of course, Mueller and Comey are very close. They've always been very close. Uh, and they really bonded even more so during this, this uh, hospital room thing where they got Ashcroft to refuse to stand off. Now, there's another part to that story though, because everybody thinks of Mueller and Comey as being so brave and standing up to illegal things. Okay, fine, that they did that little bit, but really, <clears throat> what's the word for this? There's a word. It's it's kind of a false, uh, false belief because what they essentially did afterwards is they went back to the drawing board and they just tweaked the legal authorities that John Yu had used. John Yu had just said, well, it's a, you know, the president's commander in chief powers. I don't have to even worry about anything else. When they went back to the drawing board, they based all of these uh, illegal things, not on emergency orders and not on uh, commander in chief powers, but they based them on uh, the authorization to use military force and, and later on, a little bit on the Patriot Act. And that was for the monitoring uh, part of it they based. This was later. By the way, the, the Patriot Act was passed. No one even knew that this would, this would have happened. But a couple of years later, they opportunistically grabbed one of the provisions of the Patriot Act. And again, what it was is these are lawyers. And what they're doing is they're fashioning different ways of accomplishing the same goal. And so all, all these illegal things continued. It was that hospital room didn't change anything. All the illegal things continued. They just changed the basis for the legal authority. And, and the truth is, John Yu was extremely sloppy and lazy. And he and also, in, in all fairness, he was uh, ordered to do these things quickly. And so when he wrote up his torture memo, he wrote up the really nonsense. By the way, that. Everything up to death and organ failure was was not con considered torture, but that was because he was under the gun. And they only gave him a week to write it up because they had already started torturing. And so he he just writes up real sloppy things. Um, most of those memos are like I said, some of them are public. I think only one of them really was rescinded, and that was the final really really sloppy torture memo that John Yu wrote. Um, I have a quick question. Um, I remember a former CIA agent, Ali Tufan or something, saying that mm -hmm. um, he actually, like, or the CIA came in and tried to torture. Like, did the FBI also torture? Because I was under the impression they didn't, but... Well, you know, I've met... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know him really, <clears throat> really well, but I've met Ali Tufan a couple of times, and I uh, tend to think he did very sincerely 
and really, uh, I should say, almost dangerously so for himself and his career, opposed the CIA torture. He was one of the only agents, he knew about it, of course, because he had been called in initially to, to uh, interview the same uh, Zubaida, the first, one of the first people they caught. And so, and he had gotten information from Zubaida without torturing. His, his, his method, as all FBI method is, is based on um, rapport building. And, you know, rapport building is kind of euphemistic in some ways because it still can involve some deceit in the sense that the agent interviewing, let's say it's a child killer. I'm very conversant with some child killer uh, cases. And our best interviewers slash interrogators would often feign sympathy uh, for um, the, the forces that got the, the murderer to do it. So for instance, in a kind of a Lolita type case where, where somebody murders children, the, the, the perpetrator, the child murderer will often think that the child was you know, luring them or, or flirting with them, etc. There's all different things that are in the mind of the, of the person. And so in a way to build rapport, you have to really understand how that mind is working and you have to be a, a bit, uh, actually a bit deceitful in, in basically feigning some empathy for the motivations, which are obviously no one is gonna empathize with a, with a child killer. So that, that does exist in rapport building. But Ali Soufan um, was not torturing, and he did sincerely oppose the stupid, stupid, ridiculous, counterproductive things that the that the CIA went to because based on their their contractors who were uh, you know only they were SEER, uh, what's it called S E R E uh, they had trained military people to try to resist torture, and so they grabbed these two psychologists who knew nothing about interrogation, knew nothing about it. And these guys made up, well, here's what you can do. You can put people in boxes, you can sleep deprive them. You can try to induce helplessness. And so their, all their goal was, was to induce helplessness. And you know, I think they were successful in that. They, they actually caused brain damage, they caused blindness. Uh, they killed people in the process of doing this, inducing helplessness. But did they get any good information? No, um, and so I think Ali Soufan, as far as I know, and I, like I said, I've met him briefly a couple times, and, and he signed our veteran intelligence professionals. Uh, we've written, I don't know, four or five memos against torture. Our, our retiree veteran intelligence professionals uh, that Ray McGovern founded, and Ali Soufan, Soufan has uh, signed the ones that were opposing torture. Um, I don't know, you know, that, that, that sometimes this rapport, but somebody might say that the rapport building in some cases was, was overly coercive in some ways, but I'm just going to go back to that word. That's actually the wrong word to use. The law itself is that you cannot um, overcome a person's free will. And so if you overcome a person's free will, and the, and the reason for that law the Fifth Amendment, whatever, overbear a, a person's free will. The reason for that is it would actually lead to fraud on the court because you would be uh, putting in false confessions. Uh, going back to what I said about entrapping, it is, it's not that difficult to get people to admit 
to having committed a crime. And in fact, there are false confessions all the time. And so the law is that you're not to overbear a person's will. And, you know, it can be kind of a fine line there, even if you don't get into physical torture, because some people have, uh, are more vulnerable, et cetera. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, if you plant ideas in their head and et cetera, we're, we're going off chart. We're going off topic here, but it's okay. I think Ali Sufan is, is really pretty good on this stuff. Uh, at least um, very good on torturing. Did the FBI also torture people? Well, you know, there's, there's the police in the old, you know, it depends on when you're talking about. After 9-11. After 9-11, I don't know. I really don't. Not, not that I'm aware of. Ali Sufan was lucky enough to be connected directly to the number two uh, assistant director at the time, a guy named um, Damuro. And he called back up to Pat DeMauro and he says, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. The CIA has arrived and they're going to start torturing. He goes, that's not the FBI way, is it? And, uh, and DeMauro agreed with him. He goes, no, we're not going to do that. And DeMauro was able to get Mueller uh, to, to uh, say that the FBI, if you were witnessing torture, you were supposed to leave. You weren't supposed to actually witness it. However, uh, Ali Sufan's partner stayed on and witnessed it. So it took a little while for these, these uh, this, whatever I should say, this, this policy to be refined. Also, some FBI, probably Ali Sufan, but I'm, I'm not sure, other people had begun to document some of this torture. And the reason that the FBI was documenting it was because they thought, this is a war crime. You're violating the Geneva Conventions. Yes. And, and so that FBI file, which was, was reported to have begun that somehow that got destroyed because afterwards under freedom of information and stuff there's no such thing that they can find that exists but i think probably the early reports were correct and i'm just going to say one other thing no one knew that john Yu in january of 2002 had written a memo saying the fbi no longer follows the geneva i mean how many people in the fbi would have known that there was a secret secret office of legal memo that said that the that said that the FB, that the United States was no longer following the Geneva Conventions, and so because of that, FBI agents would have said, "What? That's that's torture. They're torturing. They're going to waterboard, etc. That's highly illegal. I've got to document that." They would have been kind of you know deadly do right, and so I think that possibly there was a file, but uh, you know again under Mueller's watch that all disappeared. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Um, so this is, brings me to about 2003, where A. Miller claimed that there was like, this is in his Senate testimony, where he claimed that there were 5,000 Al-Qaeda operatives in the United States. Yep. <laughs> um, I know, it sounds ridiculous. And also, um, so, and, and also like, one thing I do not understand is how, how did he tie what the FBI knows with like attacking Iraq. Like how are, how is the 5,000 people related? Like it, it, the connection, I, I, miss, I, I don't understand that connection. I think when he, he threw out that there are 5,000, I think that was um, to fear monger. There, there, there's tons of fear mongering after 9-11. And like I said, the anthrax um, letters, killings really even further that more. 
there were quite a number of officials who actually wanted to go with tying the anthrax to the 9-11 in order to, to, you know, for purposes of launching wars, etc. So I think that that number was just based on, I don't know what it was based on. I don't think it was based on anything solid. He just, you know, I think it was a number saying thousands of, of Al-Qaeda operatives, sleeper cells were in the United States, was just to scare people to death. The truth was, at the time of 9-11, there were really, in even in Afghanistan, where some of the training uh, bases were, it was down to um, maybe 500. I, I think it was down, you know, very low. It wasn't that many. Um, I don't know exactly the figure, but a few hundred at most Al-Qaeda people, even in Afghanistan. That's why, you know, my, my letter warned that launching war on Iraq would increase the, the, the number of, of terrorists. And of course, yes, it, it actually, the, the war, our war on Iraq so destabilized the country and that's how ISIS grew up. But also if you, if you check the numbers, they were, the State Department was keeping track of terrorist ta attacks in the world for, for about 20 years or more. They were keeping a, a track of this and they would publish this report every year. Well, the year after the uh, the year after the United States attacked Iraq, um, the the figures showed that terrorism had gone up. And so uh, I think it was Colin Powell at the time. He ordered that the uh, they stop counting, stop stop that report. We don't want to know that terrorism is going up. And so they they stopped the report. Of course, it, the, some paper found out about it. And so for a day or two, there was a little scandal that they and they and professors, by the way, the professors were the ones when the first report came out and it showed that terrorism had gone down. They immediately said, "You didn't count the bombing in Bali. You didn't count this." And of course, it's gone up. And then they, the State Department, actually had to totally revise that report. So they no longer essentially tell you the numbers. They just kind of talk about it in, in a way. And in, and in fact, um, you, you mentioned white, um, white, uh, you know, fundamentalists and white supremacists, yeah. white supremacists and, and uh, right wing, right wing terrorism has always been larger than, uh, than any kind of foreign based terrorism. It's always been larger, but on worldwide terrorism, uh, Al-Qaeda Al type, ISIS type terrorism has increased dramatically. All these new groups, these new groups mushroomed, Al-Shabaab, they all, all these groups mushroomed all over into Africa now, definitely the Mideast and quite a number of really, really horrible uh, drive, uh, use of truck, trucks to mow down people. And so it's a sad, it's very, very sad You'll never hear this on the nightly news, but they'll never uh, uh, mention the responsibility for how terrorism has increased being the fault of these really, really stupid, stupid things that the United States did, which was to take out governments. You know, this idea of regime change, uh, violent, violent regime change through war if necessary to take out governments in the Mideast and somehow that's gonna make it better. And that, that all came out of the project for the new American century. And simultaneously, it came out of Madeleine Albright uh, liberals because Brzezinski and Madeleine Albright, they all have this idea of bringing democracy. And it's also through violence. Madeleine Albright doesn't have any trouble with, you know, 
children dying as long as it quote unquote brings democracy and American values and spreads American influence. And uh, that's one of the goals now. It's in the Pentagon, just the Trump just changed it, that with the United States is to use lethal force to spread American influence abroad, quote unquote. Thank you for listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. For our patrons, in the next episode, Colleen reveals all the intelligence received before 9-11. We will learn about a member of the 9-11 Commission appointed by Bush who had a very famous client, a client by the name of Bin Laden. To become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee. For our general subscribers, next week, Professor William Ian Miller from the University of Michigan joins us to discuss, can we abolish the police? What the history of ancient Iceland can teach us today. Thank you for listening. I hope you had a wonderful time. Please share and recommend our podcast to your friends. Have a wonderful week.